Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April 19th, 2022, the beginning of the year. Had the uh, San Diego based political scientist Barbara Walter on the show talking about the likelihood of a second civil war in the United States, the breakdown of democracy. Here's a clip from, um, from Walter, which I want to use in terms of an introduction to our conversation today. So this will be about a minute and then we'll get to our conversation today. And you make it clear that your mother, I think, came from Switzerland, your husband was from Canada, and that at one point you were even thinking of leaving the country. But you're a believer. And for you, ultimately, perhaps in contrast with somebody like Stephen Marsh, who, as it happens, lives in Canada, uh, you're staying and you're fighting against civil war. Is that fair? Yes, it is. So the United States is going to be the first majority white country in the world to transition to majority non-white. But it's going to happen in Canada. It's going to happen in New Zealand. It's going to happen in the UK. It's going to happen with all the majority white European countries by about 2,100. So the United States, I think, has this opportunity to lead the world, to show it how we can transition from uh, what had once been an, an ethnically or a relatively ethnically homogeneous country to a multi-ethnic country and still maintain democracy and still economically thrive and in fact come out better as a result. So I'm committed to that ideal. I really do believe we will be better. I live in California. California is already minority white and it has thrived as a minority white um, state. And, and I really, really do wanna be here to help, um, help America with that transition. So Walter is talking about um, a great experiment in American democracy, and appropriately enough, our conversation today is about that great experiment. Uh, the name of the book is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Um, it's written by an old friend of mine, Yasha Munk, who's been on the show before. Yasha is joining us from New York. Yasha, do you share Barbara Walters' optimism about the great experiment in 21st century America, this successful shift from a majority white democracy to a more diverse one? <clears throat> well, I, I don't know that I would uh, uh, describe Barbara Walter as, as an optimist. She seems to be saying that we're headed for a civil war, which sounds rather pessimistic to me. Um, then, well, she, uh, she's optimistic and she's willing to hang around and fight to avoid that civil war. Right, right. Um, look, I, I think that uh, the core point that, that that she talked about, which I agree on, is that we're doing something historically new and unprecedented at the moment in the United States and in many other democracies in the world. And that's that many democracies were founded um, in an ethnically and religiously homogeneous way. When I look at Germany, where I grew up, for example, uh, by the time the democracy stuck there after World War II at the foundation of a federal republic, the country was much more homogeneous than it had been at any point in its recent history because of the terrible wars and genocides and expulsions of the first half of the 20th century. 
<clears throat> and then, of course, there's other countries like the United States, but have been very diverse since the foundation, since the beginning, but which uh, initially allowed one group to dominate and subjugate uh, the others. Um, and so what we're trying to do now in the United States is to build a society uh, in which we're treating all groups uh, as true equals, um, despite the, the, the vastly increased uh, ethnic and religious diversity. So um, that is something really new. And what I'm arguing in my book is that it's actually something very, very hard to do. But when you look at the history of diverse societies around the world, many of them <clears throat> have failed in, in really terrible ways. Um, when you look at some of the worst instances of civil war and of genocide in the world, uh, uh, those were fought along the lines of different ethnic and religious groups. And in fact, democratic institutions uh, can make the success of these diverse societies harder. Because when you think of some of the uh, societies in the past in which they were able to keep the peace relatively well between these different ethnic and religious groups, um, they often uh, were monarchies, they often were empires. And there's a reason for that. Um, if you don't uh, have uh, any power and I don't have any power, and we both have to trust the monarch, then the fact that you might have more kids than me or that there might be more immigrants uh, from your ethnic group than from mine shouldn't matter too much. Uh, it doesn't really change anything. But if we're in a democracy, that's always also a search for a majority. And so if you now have more children than I do, uh, that might actually really, really change um, uh, how much power I have. And so it might give me much more reason to fear those kinds of developments. So, so for all of those reasons, um, what we're doing is new and it's really hard. Uh, and yet, I, I do think that precisely that background helps us to see that we're actually doing pretty well by comparison <clears throat> to other historical periods, uh, by comparison to other countries, by comparison to how our own countries were doing 25 or, or 50 years ago. Um, and so uh, I, I, I emphasize the stakes of failure here. I emphasize that we are at a perilous moment. But, but yes, I do ultimately make an optimistic case for how we can build these diverse democracies that, that actually hold together. Yasha, can we learn anything from history? You say this is all new. I did a show uh, in February with the uh, LSE-based historian Mark David Bauer on the Ottomans. He has an interesting new book out, The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars, and Caliphs. It's not surprising to me that the Ottomans are coming back into fashion because they did enable a kind of diversity. It wasn't a democratic diversity. But can we learn from a system like the Ottomans about diversity, uh, about managing political states where different peoples live and showing respect for others, even if they're not necessarily democratic, or, or are we in completely uncharted territories? Well, well I, I think we are in uncharted territory, um, but that doesn't mean that we can't learn certain things from the past. And the most important thing we can learn, I think, is the ways in which diverse societies usually fall apart uh, or the ways in which they're deeply unjust. So in my book, I chronicle three kinds of modes of failure which have been really important historically and which remain dangerous today as well. Uh, the first is a kind of form of structured anarchy. So in many parts of the world historically, different groups were, were so rival, were so jealous of each other, were so nervous of each other's power, but we never managed to build a common state. Uh, we're seeing the after effects of that still today in Afghanistan and in Somalia and in many other places uh, in the world where states are really weak. Um, and that had very significant consequences for the well-being 
of the people living in those societies because it meant they couldn't build functional uh, uh, welfare states, roads, uh, hospitals, and so on. Uh, sorry, would, you, would you include Lebanon in that, like the kind of confessional democracy that was, <clears throat> quote-unquote, confessional democracy that was constructed after independence, this sharing of power, supposed sharing of power between ethnic groups? No, I think that's a second mode of failure. So if one uh, is structured anarchy, which I just talked about, let me tell you about the second one, then we'll get to Lebanon. So the second one is is domination. Um, so if you have different groups competing for power, one easy solution to this is that one group gains power and subjugates the others. Now, that has certain advantages because it allows those societies to build a functional state, to build roads and hospitals and all of those things, but it comes at the unacceptable price of uh, you know, terrible subjugation for those who are not in power. Um, so the most ex obvious example here is slavery in the United States. But then there's a kind of third example, <clears throat> which is the one uh, which was true of Lebanon and which perhaps arguably was true of the Ottoman Empire in certain kinds of ways, which is uh, just a, a, a coexistence of different groups but without any kind of real common identity. And in particular in Lebanon, um, uh, the idea is that uh, you know, since people are fighting for control of a state and that's a really dangerous thing, what you should do is simply to have some kind of compromise worked out at the highest level, but a lot of the most important decisions being taken at the level of a group. So in Lebanon, uh, the, the laws uh, governing your marriage, your divorce, the education of your children, all of those important things uh, really depend on whether you're a Shia, a Sunni, or a Maronite Christian. You don't actually have rights and responsibilities as an individual Lebanese citizen, you have rights and responsibilities as a member of those different groups. Um, now, this is a number of problems. The first is that it means that people don't really have democratic control over the laws to which they're subject, because there's no Shia or Sunni or Maronite Christian parliament. So essentially, it's the elders of a society and often the, the, the priests and the imams who get to make the decisions. Secondly, it makes it very, very hard for people to have real contact with each other across the groups, uh, uh, across these boundaries. Um, I have two friends who are from different uh, uh, groups in Lebanon who got married and the state would not recognize the marriage for years because they are not part of the same group. And so it wasn't clear which set of laws would or should apply. But most importantly, it has actually often failed to keep the peace. So there's a political scientist, Aaron Leipard, who uh, took Lebanon as an example for how he can keep the peace in these deeply divided societies. And he wrote a book about that and published it. And a couple of years later, Lebanon broke out into a really terrible protected civil war. So I'm quite skeptical of a Lebanese uh, solution for that reason. Do, do you think, um, <clears throat> Yasha, do you think that um, ironically, both the left and right in America are sympathetic in theory, at least to a, the Lebanese model, the right in terms of white political power, the left in terms of the permanent cultural fragmentation <clears throat> of politics into interest groups reflecting people's ethnic identities? Um, well, I, I, I think I would say that the right, or at least the far right, tends to be attracted to the second model, to domination, which is to say to have a society in which one group continues to call the shots, as it has done historically, without giving due consideration and due space for all of the different groups in society. Um, so keeping up by informal means a set of hierarchies which in the past perhaps had, had formal and explicit blessing of the law. I think you are right, though, that on the left there is a new kind of 
uh, attraction to something like the Lebanese model, which you see, for example, in the debate about cultural appropriation and the idea that uh, really perhaps there's, there's a danger, there's something bad about mutual cultural influence, that it's better if we have uh, these different pure cultural communities existing next to each other, and we should really be nervous when they are influencing each other in all kinds of different ways. Um, that is the kind of thinking you would get uh, in the context of a fragmented state like Lebanon. Yeah, we had uh, Julia Arce on the show. You, interesting book. You sound like a white girl. The case for rejecting ass assimilation. And I think she's very much in that camp. Meanwhile, your solution is a third solution. You write about it in, in the book and in, uh, in, a, in an interesting essay uh, last weekend in the, Washington, in the Wall Street Journal the everyday patriotism of diverse democracies. You're, you're in favor of re-engineering patriotism. Maybe that's the wrong word, but you're certainly not shy of the idea of patriotism, are you, Yoshin? No, I, I have been historically. I grew up as a German Jew, and as such, uh, patriotism did not come easily to me. Um, uh, imported from Poland. I mean, you're not just a pure German Jew, right? I mean, not that there's such a thing as a pure German Jew. I yeah, I'm not exactly sure what that would be. But, but but my point being that in that context, I certainly was well aware of the terrible costs when nationalism goes wrong. And uh, when I was 20 years old, I sort of had the aspiration of building a society in which we might not really uh, identify by groups at all, in which we might just identify as individuals or perhaps uh, as kinds of cosmopolitans who just care equally about the suffering of everybody in the world. And I still find that moral vision quite appealing in the abstract, but most people aren't capable of that. Most people uh, uh, have much stronger local attachments, have much, you know, care more about suffering in places uh, that they've been to or that they've experienced rather than um, uh, somewhere where, where, where they've never been. Um, and we see actually today in Ukraine, for example, that patriotism can also be a real force for good, um, that it can inspire millions of people to risk their lives uh, to resist an invader. Uh, George Orwell, during World War II, uh, said that if a British intelligentsia had managed to persuade Britons to give up on their patriotism, VSS would now be patrolling in the streets of London. Yeah, you bring up, uh, you, sorry, you, you bring up Orwell in, in, in your essay, you say, uh, it's precisely because Orwell knew how powerfully such emotions drive politics and how destructive they can become when they are allowed to fester, that he defended a constructive form of patriotism. But what's different in, in the context of Ukraine from Russian patriotism and, 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 and Ukrainian patriotism? I'm not justifying the Russian invasion, of course, of Ukraine. Uh, but there is a sense, at least amongst many ordinary Russians, that the war has been forced on them. Can you distinguish between the two? Um, yeah, so I think for me, there's sort of three different conceptions. Uh, so the first point is that uh, we, uh, we need uh, some form of collective uh, identity. And that actually, if we leave the, the really resonant uh, sort of symbolism of, of nationalism to worse kinds of people. That is precisely when demagogues or dictators like Putin can rise or when people like Donald Trump can find it easier to win an election in the, in the United States. Um, so I think of patriotism as a kind of half domesticated beast. It'll always remain a little bit dangerous. It's always possible that the worst kinds of people are going to stoke it and make it run wild. 
And so what we should do is to try and make it useful, try to tame it. So, so what does that look like? Well, one conception of, of nationalism that's historically been very strong is an ethnic conception, right? Which says that what defines a nation is its common ethnic descent. And uh, therefore what you need to, um, uh, and, and that justifies uh, a special set of solidarities. Um, now that I think is unconvincing. It's unconvincing uh, because I don't know why common descent should have a moral salient, salience. Uh, it's unconvincing because it would exclude a lot of people from our uh, diverse democracies today. And it's unconvincing because actually most people in, in the United States, in Western Europe, in, in many democracies in the world, no longer think like that. They recognize that they have true compatriots who have different kinds of ethnic roots than they themselves do. Um, so that leaves a second conception, which has historically been really strong, which is a civic or constitutional patriotism. Um, so a civic and constitutional patriotism basically says, uh, look, we are uh, bound by a set of shared values. Uh, what makes us American uh, is our love of a constitution, our, our love of the founding, of the Declaration of Independence, of a Bill of Rights. Uh, and I think that that's an important thing. That is precisely, to go to your question about Russia, what makes it one of the most patriotic possible acts for some of the brave protesters in Russia to say, we oppose this war, but that doesn't make us anti-Russian. It actually makes us true Russians. Um, we are saying not in our name, not in the name of our nation, because that is not the ideals that we should stand for as a country. So I think the civic patriotism is resonant. It's important. It's one of the reasons why I was proud to swear to defend the American constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, five years ago when I became a citizen. Um, but it is insufficient. Uh, and the main and most obvious reason why it's insufficient is simply that most people don't care that much about politics. But when most people say that they love the country, that they love America, for example, they're not thinking about the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. They're not talk, thinking about those documents which we may barely know. They're thinking, I think, about something much more straightforward. And that, to me, is this third conception of patriotism, which I want to add to the civic dimension. And that's a cultural patriotism. I think most people who love a country love its cities and landscapes, its sights and smells and sounds, um, its cultural scripts, its, its ways uh, for people to engage with each other. Uh, it, it's celebrities, it's TikTok stars. It, it's that kind of dynamic, ever-changing, naturally diverse culture which does unite nations in a, in a meaningful way, um, which does make most people say that they love their country. Um, and I think we should, we should recognize and embrace that. We are speaking with Yasha Munk, the author of a really interesting new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. I'll take a short break now, Yasha, 60 seconds. And afterwards, I want to talk more about identity and whether it's a good or a bad thing and how we can move beyond it into a, uh, a more truly diverse democracy. We'll be back in about 60 seconds with Yasha Munk, the author of The Great Experiment. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. 
And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Yasha Munk, the author of The Great Experiment. Um, Yasha, last week I wrote an essay uh, on Elon Musk and his attempt to take over Twitter, uh, which was critical of private companies taking over the public square. I know in your in your new book, um, The Great Experiment, you talk about the importance of public space in terms of creating civic identity. Does it concern you um, that our neoliberal age is essentially, at least in the United States, has really undermined much public space? Um, I, I never quite know what people mean by the word neoliberal. And Well, I, I mean, use that word. I had the Cambridge historian Gary Gerstel on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about the rise and fall of neoliberalism. I mean, that's a slippery term, but he talks about the, the cult of deregulation. Yeah, I mean, again, I think the 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 step from deregulation to what kind of public space we have, I think, is really complicated, and uh, a lot of the time, people throw these words around in a way that sort of insinuates a bunch of things while telling the the particular causal story. So I I, I would just separate these two topics. I mean, I think it is a problem that we have uh, Twitter as uh, a significant public square. You know, some of you know what one of the mistakes that people make about Twitter is that they think that it somehow really represents the opinion of uh, Americans or public opinion more broadly. That often isn't the case. Uh, only the most uh, politically fanatical people tend to be uh, posting and thinking about politics on Twitter, uh, and they are systematically more extreme than the average voter, much more extreme than the average American. Um, and so I think one important mistake is to look at what's on the Twitter feed and think that it represents sort of real currents of public opinion out there that are very strong among voters and so on. But having said that, um, a lot of the most influential people in the country and in the world spend a lot of their time on Twitter um, and do let it inform them in these really important ways. Um, and so that does make it very worrying when uh, you know unaccountable individuals in Silicon Valley who we don't really even know, we don't really know who are, who's on these committees, who's makes these kinds of decisions, can decide who gets access to that public sphere. Um, and so I am worried uh, uh, about that. Um, now, it's not clear to me that Elon Musk buying Twitter would change that. I think that's already been the case. It's going to be the case in a slightly different way if Elon Musk buys it. Um, uh, so I don't quite share the freak out that people have had about this particular acquisition. I think we had a problem before and we're probably going to have a problem afterwards. 
Well, what about the uh, the broader issue of this post-racial civic identity? Uh, Justin Guest has a new book out. We had him on the show, Majority Minority, really writing in some ways about similar themes to you. How are we supposed to generate this civic identity beyond rather boring classes on civic identity in school that no one's going to pay any attention to? Well, I think part of a point that I make in, in, in my writing on cultural patriotism is that that actually already exists in significant ways that uh, a lot of people do identify very strongly with the United States, uh, that uh, I haven't read this book by Julia Acker that you were talking about, but uh, telling people not to assimilate, I think is slightly ironic because people actually are assimilating. Um, uh, depends exactly on what you mean by assimilation. Uh, but for example, there's this idea that it's somehow racist to require people to learn English. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, the, the huge majority of children of immigrants prefer English to the language of their parents, and the huge majority of grandchildren of immigrants no longer even speak the country, uh, the language of origin. And so, as a matter of fact, we still have a really strong sociological uh, process of assimilation. Now, in my book, I emphasize the difficulties of building a diverse democracy, but I'm also really uh, skeptical of this idea that America will ever be majority-minority in a meaningful sense. Um, you know, this assumes that you can take the incredibly heterogeneous population uh, that goes by uh, the moniker of white in the United States and somehow think that they are one uh, uh, coherent category. And then it makes the even stranger assumption that you can take the incredibly heterogeneous set of groups uh, that are known as people of color and think that they are meaningfully going to stand together in a coalition on the other side uh, of the ledger. Um, but to think that, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the child of somebody who may have, uh, you know, be descended from a, a French aristocratic family on one side and a Indian Brahmin family on the other side, um, uh, and then, you know, grown up in New York or Washington, D.C., going to fancy private schools is somehow uh, a person of color in, in, in the same meaningful way. Um, or, or, or naturally part of the same category, naturally part of the same political dividing line uh, as somebody who has, uh, you know, ancestors, all of whom were enslaved and uh, dominated for centuries uh, in the United States, um, is simply to misdescribe sociological reality. And so if you unthinkingly describe, you know, use the one-drop rule and say that anybody who doesn't uh, fully descend uh, from, from Western or Central Europe um, is, is thereby a person of color and they're going to have a completely different uh, uh, metaphysical spirit than anybody else. Then, then you come up with this conclusion that America is set to become majority-minority by 2045 or 2050. Um, but that, I think, misdescribes reality in an important way. And it's dangerous because it actually uh, makes people more worried about the future, makes people more likely to think that we're going to have a civil war, makes people more likely to think that we're going to have this very deep conflict and there's nothing better to drive people into the hands of a far right, into the hands of a demographic panic, than that way of talking, which has now become very, very common among the mainstream and the left as well. Yeah, so you mentioned racism, history of slavery in America. Um, why is it that some groups in America seem to be embracing the traditions of democracy more loyally and more passionately than others? Um, We've done a number of shows about African-American women and voting. We had Martha Jones on the show, for example, talking about uh, the history of black women uh, and, and voting rights. I've had Carol Anderson on the show many times talking about 
American identity and democracy. Again, without wishing to fall into anti-racist traps, it seems to me that African-American women in particular, whilst acknowledging the injustices, obviously, of slavery and an American history, um, recognize the value of voting in American democracy more than other groups. Is there some truth to that? Are there some groups in America, you think, who appreciate diverse democracies more than others? Or am I falling into racist traps here, Yasha? Yeah, I think it's quite remarkable to speak like that about demographic groups and say that some groups just don't value democracy. Um, I do think you're falling into a trap of a needless polarization uh, and and easy talking points that are really quite disdainful about uh, a lot of a lot of my fellow citizens. Um, uh, now, look, by the way, um, you know, I was talking about the fact that a lot of the left is now saying we're going to win inevitably because uh, you know non-white voters are voting for Democrats in greater numbers and white voters voting for Republicans in greater numbers. And as the share of, of the non-white population rises, uh, that means there's going to be this growing or perhaps this inevitable democratic majority. And that's exactly what's driving uh, the panic of a lot of the Trump is right. That's exactly the same argument as Michael Anton made in his Flight 93 election essay in 2016, in which he claimed that, I quote, the ceaseless importation of third world foreigners, end quote, um, would, uh, uh, you know, be the doom of the American Republic. And that's what we have to let Trump loose, because even though he might not know how to fly the plane, at least he's going to try and turn it around. Um, now, actually, when you look at the 2020 election, what we saw was a significant uh, depolarization by race. Uh, what we saw was that the only reason that Donald Trump was competitive in that election is that he significantly gained in a share of a vote among every non-white voter group, including African-Americans, including Asian-Americans, including especially Latinos. And that Joe Biden is only the legitimately elected president of the United States because he significantly increased the share of the vote among white voters compared to four years earlier. Um, but, uh, Biden was ultimately, uh, given the history of primaries, was uh, at least elected as the Democratic candidate because of the, the primaries in, in Carolina and African-American voters as well. Is that fair or not? Well, but th th this is actually making the same point, which is that this, this idea that uh, uh, non-white voters are somehow more, more, more radical, more, progr more progressive. More, more, more patriotic. Actually, that was my argument. Well, I don't know. But, well, Andrew, what, well, this makes no sense. So what? Like, it's more patriotic to vote for Joe Biden than to vote for Pete Buttigieg or some other candidate in the Democratic primary? This is all harebrained stuff. It doesn't make any sense. Um, I think it was, you know, you can be a patriot and vote for any of the... Uh, can you be a patriot and vote for Trump, though? Sorry? Can you be a patriot and vote for Trump, an American patriot? Well, I think that uh, uh, people who vote for Trump are risking the survival of the American Republic. They think they're patriots, for sure. Uh, but anyway, that wasn't your argument. Your argument was that somehow uh, the people who vote for Biden in the primaries were more patriotic, and that just doesn't make sense. So, so you know, let's let's actually think about these things a little bit carefully and just notice that the American electorate is depolarizing by race, uh, that actually at the moment a lot of Latinos are continuing to switch to the Republican Party, um, and that we can look at that from two points of view. On the one side, uh, this is uh, concerning because personally, I obviously strongly prefer for Democrats to win in 2024. I very much worry about what it would mean if Donald Trump became re-elected as, as president. Uh, but also this idea that uh, it would be good for the country if we have these uh, voting blocks which are set in stone 
And uh, if 20 years from now I could walk down the street and guess who you're voting for just by looking uh, at, at the color of your skin, um, uh, and that that would be a good country to live in if somehow Democrats eked out a majority on the basis of a demographic coalition, but by the way, 47% of the population would feel really disenfranchised, really angry, and still, by the way, have a lot of guns. Uh, it's just a really dystopian, naive, and unthinking vision of what kind of country we should build. It's Lebanon, uh, uh, the, the Lebanon yeah. that... Uh, what about the issue, uh, Yasha, of religion? Uh, Tocqueville, of course, came in to America in the 19th century and saw two things. He saw a certain kind of religion which he was interested in, and that was, in fact, his formal reason, I think, for coming and prisons. And, of course, he observed democracy in America. What about the role of religion in civic identity. We did a show uh, with the UC Berkeley sociologist Caroline Chen, who argues that in the sort of vacuum, the cult of the, 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 the spiritual vacuum, or what she sees as a spiritual vacuum in America, work has become religion. Does civic identity need to become a kind of religion, or is that, again, a vulgarization of these terms? No, I, I, you know, so this goes back to this idea of how strong uh, constitutional patriotism is ever going to be. And I think constitutional patriotism is an important element of, of, of an identity of a country like the United States. I think we should try and encourage it in so far as we can through civics lessons in school and other things. Um, but I think in the end, the, the thing that's going to explain why people love a country, why they care about it, is always going to be a little less highfalutin. Um, most people just won't care that much about politics in a free society, right? To make them care really that much, you have to indoctrinate them much more strongly than you can in a free society. Um, and that's a good thing. And so what they uh, will love about their country is its actual everyday culture. Um, uh, this is what I meant also when we were talking earlier about uh, at least integration, I usually use the term assimilation, um, uh, but uh, uh, but this, is, this, this reflects the fact that most people who have parents who come from wherever in the world um, uh, come to strongly identify with this country uh, uh, when they grow up here. And that is one of its you know, real strengths. And so I think I would count more on that integrative force of everyday American life uh, than on some civic religion. Yasha, uh, uh, Gideon Rackman had an interesting piece, I'm sure you've seen it in the FT this morning, on patriotism. Patriots versus globalists re replacing the left-right divide. Uh, Rackman's been on the show. It's not a particularly original idea, and I don't think he's claiming it to be original. But isn't that notion of local patriotism versus globalism simply a reality and that you have to acknowledge that? And if it's true, then your great experiment is bound to fail because you've got two groups in America uh, the coastal elites who see themselves in globalist terms and the people in between, and again, that's a slight vulgarization, but it reflects some political reality, who see themselves in local patriotic terms. And that's simply a, a socioeconomic and cultural reality that's only going to get more compounded in the future. No, look, I think that if you really think that the world is entering a struggle between local patriotism and globalism, um, uh, uh, the answer, it's going to be a very short fight because there's so many more local patriots. I think people really underestimate the power that groups uh, have over us. This is something that I really uh, looked into in, in detail in, in the book, in the great experiment. Um, uh, you know, uh, when, when Henry Teifel, a really influential social psychologist, 
try to understand what it is that makes groups uh, powerful, what it is that makes members of groups who are willing to discriminate against outsiders, he thought, let me create groups that are so silly, so meaningless, that none of the members would actually be willing to discriminate in favor uh, of insiders in that kind of way. And then I can ladle on attributes to those groups slowly and slowly until uh, they start discriminating, and then we'll know what it is about groups that makes them powerful. And actually what he found is that when he got a lot of uh, kids from the suburbs of Bristol in England into the lab and showed them a sheet of paper with a bunch of dots on it um, and had them estimate how many dots there were, uh, and some said 120, some said 180, uh, and he divided them into underestimators and overestimators. The underestimators immediately started discriminating against the overestimators, and the overestimators immediately started discriminating against the underestimators. Now, I have you know students that I teach that are uh, some of the most claim to be some of the most tolerant people in the world, probably in many ways are, who certainly would claim to be um, on the more globalist side of this than the localist side of this, perhaps. Um, uh, but who, when I ask them whether a hot dog is a sandwich or not, um, uh, quickly start discriminating against the people in the class who uh, give a different answer on that in, in the same kind of game that Henry Teifel set up. Um, so this tendency to form groups goes really, really strong. It's really powerful. And even for some people, they make it part of identity to claim that they have equal concern for everybody in the world, um, uh, that they have no local preference, that we don't care more about their own country. Uh, that is often wrong. In fact, some of the most extreme uh, believers in American exceptionalism tend to be the people who, who really hate America within the United States. It tends to be the people who see every evil in the world as having its roots in America's failings. They actually are just as exceptionalist because they're just as obsessed with their own group uh, as the people who value it in a more positive way. Um, and so uh, so I, I wouldn't describe it quite the way. I haven't read Gideon's, Gideon's uh, particular article, um, uh, uh, but um, uh, but but I don't think that the globalists have a very, very strong faction. Now, what is happening, I think, is that there is an educational and economic elite. And I'm not talking about billionaires. I'm talking about the top 10 percent, the people who've gone to fancy colleges, the people who are you and I, you and I, absolutely. And most people listening to this, probably. Um, and they, I think, especially in the Anglo-Saxon world, have become very, very distant from average citizens. And they've often started to really look down at average citizens. And that is a very important political divide in our countries. Well, it's a really interesting and important subject. As always, um, uh, Yashar has got his finger on it. Uh, the Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Um, I really think, actually, the Lebanon, uh, I think the Lebanon uh, warning is the most important in some ways, Yasha. I think that Lebanon might be the future. It needs to be brought out more, as you're doing in your book. What else should people be reading in addition to The Great Experiment, Yasha? Uh, well, they should uh, sign up for my magazine, Persuasion. Yeah, uh, I forgot to mention Persuasion. You're having much success with that? Yeah, we have a great readership. Um, I think we're, we're publishing wonderful stuff, and it's a defense of philosophically liberal ideas. Um, Are you attracting any patriots, any Republicans? Um, I have. I don't know who our readers are. I'm sure there's more Democrats yeah, than Republicans. Well, that, 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 that answers that question. Um, is there anything bringing people together, though, seriously? I mean, persuasion was your, or is your startup trying to do that? Um, Are there places we can go or books we can read that everyone will appreciate and enjoy and get a message out of? 
I mean, I think there's probably some really not political stuff of, of which that may be the case. Um, but, um, you know, the Tinder swindler or something. But, um, uh, you know, I actually think that our political level is really screwed up. That when you look at uh, cable news, when you look at uh, Congress, um, uh, when you look at the world of, of, of the various kinds of cultural elites on the left, but also on the right, um, you know, the country is deeply torn and divided. When you look at what things are like in the, in the heart of a country, when you look at developments across the United States, when you look at how much more cooperation there is than, than past decades, and even how much common sense there actually is about most policy questions when you look at polls, um, there's a little bit more hope. So for me, the question is whether we're going to be able to um, sort of impose this cultural civil war of elites on everybody else, or whether everybody else is going to manage to resist against the imposition of this cultural civil war. And that's an open question. Um, but 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 I'm quite hopeful about what the country looks like, um, you know, outside of the pages of the big newspapers and outside of the airwaves of the cable news channels. So a book that you would suggest for people to read to help with this in addition to The Great Experiment? I can't think of one right now. And finally, Yasha Munk, um, who runs the world in 2022? Who's in charge? We're asking everyone this. Well, I think the, the, the striking thing about the world is that nobody's really in charge, right? Um, and I'm not just saying that because I think Joe Biden has turned out to be perhaps a, a, a less decisive president than, than, than some of us may have hoped. Um, uh, but I think that's just been the state of the world for a long time, that the most powerful man in the world still does not have a power to uh, influence and impact it in, in very strong ways. Um, you know, some people can make it a lot worse, Vladimir Putin made the world a lot worse by invading Ukraine. You can screw things up. But when you actually want to change things, move them into productive directions, uh, nearly every lacks the power to do so in a meaningful way.